How do you feel? I feel great. I mean, I really do. And I think part of the reason I feel so good is because I take balance of nature in a capsule form. I take the fruits and veggies. This stuff is really good. You know, this is just an amazing company. They have a terrific history, phenomenal history. It was developed by Dr. Douglas Howard. You can read all about it on the website. Balance of Nature receives over a thousand success stories every single month. They get thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers who have purchased billions of capsules of their fruits and veggies, like I take, over the past 20 years. You can check it all out right there online on their website. Their products are gluten-free and non-GMO, and they contain no added sugars or synthetics. I think if you're looking for something that makes you feel a little bit better naturally, then you should definitely give this a shot. Definitely give them a try. You can give them a ring. You can use my name. Make sure you use my name, actually, because you're going to get much more off if you use my name, 35% off, with code word TRISH. Just give them a ring at 1-800-2468-751. 1-800-2468-751. You use discount code TRISH. You can order online at balanceofnature.com. But again, use the discount code because it's more than you're going to get anywhere else. 35% off. Discount code Trish, balanceofnature.com. Check them out. Well, Donald Trump certainly has a way with um, getting people a little riled up, shall we say. I mean, they still haven't recovered from this one. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. <laughs> All right, so the left is going wild. Like now they really, really need to stop him. No matter what, Donald Trump must be stopped because gosh darn it, he's making friends with our enemies. The people that we have chosen to be our enemies, he's, he's going to upend the entire international order. Oh my goodness, what if, what if I told you that that international order was structured in a way to benefit, say, just a few? Well, then they'd probably call me a conspiracy theorist, but nonetheless, I got to share some information with you. Welcome to the program, everyone. I am Trish Regan. This is the Trish Regan Show. We are brought to you, as always, by our good friends over at LegacyPMInvestments.com. Legacy Precious Metals, one 866 If you're worried about inflation, as you should be, like, it's happening. I mean, we just got the report the other day, and consumer prices up a hot 3.1%. Listen, you should be worried about inflation. So one of the diversification tools you might look at is gold, if you're going to look at gold Call these guys. They're really good guys. one 589 You know Charles. He's been on the show. His team is really, really good, and they can help hook you up. You, of course, are always welcome to use my name and name drop however you like. Anyway, um, I, I, let me turn back to what's really happening here because we have a $95 billion plan to make sure that Russia does not get its hands on Ukraine. And there are going to be people that benefit from that plan, including shareholders at some of the nation's largest military companies. And there are going to be politicians that benefit from that plan because you see lobbyists have been given a ton of money to go out and lobby these politicians. And certain politicians are going to get more money 
that's fed to their campaigns if certain things go through. And the president of the United States is now saying, look, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to pass this thing, Congress. Mitt Romney told senators the other day it was like the most important thing they'd ever do in their lives. I mean, talking about dramatic. Take a look at Mitt. The vote we will soon take to provide military weapons for Ukraine is the most important vote we will ever take as United States senators. Okay, tell that to Rand Paul. Rand Paul may also think it's important for different reasons, of course. Man, he went off. Listen. The title of this bill should say, Ukraine first, America last, because that's what this is really about. Now, bills in the legislature, bills that come before the Senate, don't have pictures or covers on them like a book would have or a magazine. But if this bill had an image or a cover on the front of the bill, the image would be the migrant in New York who assaulted a police officer, was freed from jail on no bail, and gave the middle finger of both hands to America. That's what this bill is. It's the middle finger to America. This wow. bill is the middle finger to So that's a pretty graphic image. We talked about that the other day. Like, I'm just anticipating the team's thumbnails on that one. It is a very graphic image. But Rand Paul driving it home that really, in his view, this was not good for America. This was good for Ukraine, but not good for America. Don't tell that to Nikki Haley. Oh, no. No, Nikki Haley who is just facing disgrace after disgrace, first Nevada, now South Carolina. Nikki Haley wants you to know that she's all in. I mean, she's the former ambassador to NATO, for goodness sakes. It's important for Joe Biden and Congress to tell the American people why they should care, to give them the other side. And you don't hear that. The other side is that NATO's been a 75-year success story. We have not had war in the region. And if you look, Russia has never invaded a NATO country. They've invaded Georgia. They've invaded Ukraine. They've invaded Moldova. So we want to make sure that, yes, do we want NATO to pay more? Of course we do. But the last thing we're going to do is side with a thug. Keep in mind, Putin kills his opponents. Keep in mind that he has arrested Evan Grosovich, who's been sitting in jail just for doing journalism. Keep in mind that this is a man who has wanted to destroy America and defeat America for years. I dealt with Russia every single day. It is a mistake for Trump to side with Putin over our allies. We needed a lot of friends after 9-11. We better remember that. But it takes a friend to, to get a friend. Ambassador. All right. All right. So I'm going to stop her. And by the way, I don't dispute her point on the Wall Street Journal reporter. I don't dispute her point on how Look, you know, when he needs to take care of someone, he's taking care of someone and, and not in a, a way that, that we would ever, ever condone. All that said, one, when we needed friends after 9-11, guess who was our friend? Yeah, it would be Russia because it was Putin who called Bush as that was all going down, W at the time, and was a very good friend to him at that point. And then the other thing I'd say is that you have to be at some point, Nikki, can you not, as a human being, as a, hopefully an intelligent enough person, be asking why it is the way it is? In other words, why are we in this mess? Why did we have such a breakdown in diplomacy when you could have seen this one coming a zillion miles away? 
I mean, maybe the answer would be if you don't actually want people's lives on the line like this and so many, you know, so much destruction, then maybe you should have done whatever you could to say, hey, Putin, don't worry about it. We're not really going right in on your border. And yet we didn't, right? Like we, we continued to encroach and he started getting scared in part because of the rhetoric coming out of Antony Blinken and Joe Biden as soon as they came into office. So the smart thing from a diplomacy standpoint would be to temper that rhetoric, not to be like, oh, we're big, mighty NATO, but maybe to be a little bit more coy with it. Maybe to actually play around with the semantics, such as, dare I say, Donald Trump actually did. So he didn't have Putin terrified that he was going to be invaded any day of the week. Now, this takes a little understanding of human nature. It actually takes a fair appreciation for Russian culture and Russian history, which I'm going to tell you guys, um, I don't think we have a whole lot of there. And I'm not an expert on Russian history, nor am I an expert on psychology, but I think I get people enough to know that, look, if I were in the same situation and it was China or Russia right there on my doorstep down at the Texas border, I wouldn't be so psyched, would you? I mean, it's a fair, legitimate point. And by the way, it's a point that was raised by political scientists, including the granddaddy of Russia, U.S. relations. That would be the guy who was the ambassador to the former Soviet Union, now deceased, George Kennan, back in the 1950s, 1952, the height of the Cold War. This is a man, George Kennan, who started in the State Department in 1928, who was there throughout the Cold War, and then just kept repeatedly saying, you know what? We're not operating in a way that is going to be conducive to peace in this region in the future. He was warning as soon as the wall came down, as soon as Dick Cheney came out with a plan on how we were going to deal with Russia. Well, what do we need to deal with exactly? Weren't they our friend at that point? Well, I mean, having friends, I guess, is not necessarily good for the uh, military complex business. Now, is it? I want to point out that if you do a search right now on Google, go ahead, go, go do it. If you do a search and you type in, did we promise Russia that we wouldn't expand NATO? What you immediately get is that is disinformation. There was no promise to not to enlarge NATO. You see at Harvard Law School, that's the first thing that comes up. Harvard, oh, lovely place that that is. I won't even go there. Don't even get me started. The whole Claudine thing, Claudine gave it. There was no promise not to enlarge NATO. That's what Harvard says. France 24, their articles are actually a little more fair than what you see in the immediate headlines because the immediate headline is effectively that, you know, this isn't true. And then you get debunking Russian disinformation on NATO. And that's provided courtesy of NATO itself. So NATO's like, no, well, we always had a shot at expanding our reach. Not really, guys. And I have proof of it because I've gone back to primary sources. But before I show you that, I want you to hear from Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin himself, who told Tucker Carlson in a very lengthy interview, it was over two hours long. Tucker got to hear the whole 800-year history of Russia. By the way, history is really important to Putin and to many in Russia. He got to hear why it is that Vladimir Putin is so upset about NATO coming closer and closer. Take a listen. 
That is exactly what the miscalculation is. CIA did its job to complete the coup. I think one of the deputy secretaries of state said that it cost a large sum of money, almost five billion. But the political mistake was colossal. Why would they have to do that? All this could have been done legally, without victims, without military action, without losing Crimea. We would have never considered to even lift a finger if it hadn't been for the bloody developments on Maidan. Because we agreed with the fact that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, our borders should be along the borders of former Union's republics. We agreed to that, but we never agreed to NATO's expansion and, moreover, we never agreed that Ukraine would be in NATO. We did not agree to NATO bases there without any discussion with us. For decades we kept asking, don't do this, don't do that. And what triggered the latest events? Firstly, the current Ukrainian leadership declared that it would not implement the Minsk agreements, which had been signed, as you know, after the events of 2014 in Minsk, where the plan of peaceful settlement in Donbass was set forth. But no, the current Ukrainian leadership, foreign minister, all other officials, and then president himself said that they don't like anything about the Minsk agreements. In other words, they were not going to implement it. A year or a year and a half ago, former leaders of Germany and France said openly to the whole world that they indeed signed the Minsk agreements, but they never intended to implement them. They simply led us by the nose. Okay, so he's kind of angry. Because he says, hang on, we had a deal. That was part of the whole Cold War thing going down. We had a deal. And then on top of the deal, you know, we had the Minsk agreements and you guys didn't abide by them. Apparently you never had any intention of abiding by them. And therein lies some of the problem. Well, here's the thing. He may be onto something. Dare I say, oh my gosh, I said it. CNN's going to be all over me, right? Did you see CNN? Totally, totally. We're going to get to that in a second. They jumped all over Tucker, poor Tucker, because he dared to sit down with Vladimir Putin. But here's the thing. Putin's actually right. Putin is making the point that after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, we had a handshake deal that we were going to be friends and they were not going to expand NATO. But what did we do? We expanded NATO. I mean, back then it was 17 countries, and today it's 30, ladies and gentlemen. So how did that go down? Apparently, because of a plan Dick Cheney put in place and released, or it got leaked to, the New York Times back in 1992. Now, just to refresh your memory, the wall goes down in November 1989. Reagan is president. Gorbachev, take down this wall. There you go. Bush comes in, succeeding Reagan. Cheney's not VP at this point. No, no, no. He's just the lowly defense secretary who's got this plan to get the whole military complex back up and running effectively. So in 1992, this thing gets released. Let me share with you part of that plan. Dick Cheney, 
<laughs> winds up having the thing published in the New York Times. And it, it reads, quote, Our first objective is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival, either on the territory of the former Soviet Union or elsewhere, that poses a threat on the order of that posed formerly by the Soviet Union. This is a dominant consideration underlying the new regional defense strategy and requires that we endeavor to prevent any hostile power from dominating a region whose resources would, under consolidated control, be sufficient to generate global power. These regions include Western Europe, East Asia, the territory of the former Soviet Union, and Southwest Asia. So he's saying, look, we're done with the USSR as our rival. Cold War's over. The wall's down. What do we do now? Oh, it must be something else we can do right now, right? <laughs> and so he comes up with this 1992 plan for containing Russia. Let me just tell you, even the people in, in the administration at the time thought it was nuts. Let me go back to an article. This one is actually from the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, of which I was a member. Um, let's go to the CFR piece, Drew. Do we have that one handy for folks? You see this one. It's called The Fall of the Wall, an American Grand Strategy. So they cite this. This is a guy who's coming out years later, years later in 2007, 9, 2009, November 2009. But he's citing Cheney's notorious, he calls it notorious, 1992 defense planning guidance. That's what it was, the defense planning guidance, which got leaked to the New York Times. And he says what made the document controversial was that it argued that the United States needed to prevent not only its adversaries from gaining greater power in the core regions, but also major allies such as Germany and Japan. The White House disavowed the Cheney document and George H.W. Bush's national security advisor later described the Pentagon's approach, in other words, Cheney's approach, at the time as, quote, nutty. Okay, so it was nutty back then, but now it's nutty of us to think that, oh, maybe there was ever anything in place that would have prevented NATO from getting bigger and bigger and bigger. No, it was Cheney's idea to make NATO bigger and bigger and bigger and simultaneously, at the same time, make sure that, and I get this, I get this, you know, you don't want Germany turning into a superpower or Japan turning into a superpower that could rival or threaten you, the United States of America. The question, though, is why is all the energy being focused on Russia? Maybe by keeping them down on the farm, right? You keep all these countries down and they all scramble to be part of NATO, and it's exciting to be part of NATO, and you're going to be protected by the United States if you're in NATO. If you keep them all sort of part of NATO and under your thumb, you need to have an enemy to do that. And it just so happens that Russia, given our Cold War relationship that we had for years and years, is still kind of a nifty little enemy to have. We knew how to play that game, did we not? <laughs> We've been playing it for years and years. And then you get ambassadors out there that are actually real ambassadors and real think tanky type people like George Kennan that actually were doing this for the right reasons. And George Kennan's like, hey, like, wait a second. Wait a second. Like, this is not going to be good. This is a recipe for disaster. I have more on that in a moment. But first of all, as we think about all these recipes for disasters, we think about the policies that are not really benefiting us as Americans. 
or as business owners, especially small business owners, I want to give a, a little shout to my friends over at JCN, Job Creators Network, JCN. Join jcn.com. That's the place where you can go to learn more about all the wonderful things that these guys are doing. And when I say wonderful, I mean it. The reason they are so wonderful is because they are looking at all the policies that are affecting you as an everyday American, as an everyday small business owner. And they're saying, how is it that we can do better? In other words, let's grow the pie for everyone here in the great United States of America. Let's put in place policies that will actually work to make our dollars go further and to grow our productivity as small businesses. Alfredo Ortiz, he's been on the show before. You've met him. He always has some really insightful things to say about the economy, about jobs, about what's going on overall. You look at the inflation numbers we got the other day, up 3.1%, pretty hot read there. And it, it, it reminds you of how critical it is that we have people looking out for us, small business owners included, of which I am one now here at the Trish Regan Show. Reminder to subscribe. But it, it, it tells you, listen, you know what? We need people that are thinking about the policies that will affect us for the better. When I look back at the economic policies of the Trump administration and I see that you had median incomes growing the most they had grown in 50 years, and I compare and contrast it with what's going on today, income adjusted for inflation. Oh, wow, Joe Biden, that is one statistic that you are not performing well on, buddy. I think about the importance of policy, economic policy, foreign policy, border policy, et cetera. So check them out. I I think you'll be pretty psyched. Join jcn.com. Join jcn.com today. But back to what was going on and what was really going on there in Russia at the time of November 1989, when that wall came down, the Russians believed that this was a kind of solution, that we would have a peaceful opportunity to grow together. And it may be that the the people that negotiated all of this on behalf of the United States, they believed that too. They believed that so much because... Look, they had studied Russia for so long. They were very immersed in terms of understanding the culture, the history, the people. And they knew how important it was for Russia to have some pride and to not feel like they were being ganged up upon by the rest of Europe. It's something that George Kennan, who negotiated so much with Russia over the years, really understood, understood phenomenally well and was really disturbed to see the plan that Cheney had put in place in 1992, which originally was laughed at, start to come to fruition when Bill Clinton became president of the United States. That's actually when a lot of this stuff started kicking in. Funny, right? They say politics makes for strange bedfellows, and I guess this is another example of it. Dick Cheney and Bill Clinton were not necessarily on the side, same side of anything, ex- except for maybe this. From 1989 to 1992, you really had no vision. You really had no vision. What do we do? Okay, we got former Soviet Union. Now they're sort of our friends. Well, gosh darn it, what's going to happen to this whole business over at Lockheed Martin? What's going to happen to you know, all these companies, Northrop Grumman, all of these big industrial military companies that employed Americans, that had shareholders, that wanted to see growth? I mean, a lot of them were really kind of doing nothing, nothing for a while, nothing until... Hmm, The Maiden Revolution in February 2014. More on that in a moment. But before I get to that, think about no vision, no vision. They think Cheney's plan is nutty. And then Clinton comes in. He starts ramping it up. 
and he's ramping up. And George Kennan, the guy who had spent his entire career at state trying to get some kind of peace with Russia, George Kennan's like, what the, what the H-E-double-L are you doing, buddy? Let me share with you his opinion piece that was published in the New York Times, 1997. Mr. Kennan writes, a fateful error. So the title in and of itself is pretty interesting. And I've just got a little excerpt from the piece. You should go look at it. New York Times, February 5th, 1997. Something of the highest importance is at stake here, writes the man who's the granddaddy to Russia-U.S. relations. He continues, and perhaps it is not too late to advance a view that I believe is not only mine alone, but is shared by a number of others with extensive and in most instances more recent experience in Russian matters. The view bluntly stated is that expanding NATO would be the most fateful era of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. (sighs) Tell us how you really feel. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations and to impel Russian foreign policy and directions decidedly not to our liking. And last but not least, it might make it much more difficult, if not impossible, to secure the Russia's, Russia's Duma's ratification of start to agreement and to achieve further reductions of nuclear weaponry. In other words, Kenning got it. He knew exactly what was going to happen. You expand NATO and you're going to, Really, you know what, Russia, okay? That's exactly what has happened. Exactly what's happened. I mean, why do we have these morons in the State Department that don't actually consult history, that don't consult primary sources or the people on the ground? I showed you earlier what the simple internet search will yield you. It's as, I mean, they're really gaslighting us. It's like, no, 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 none of this happened. We didn't make any promises, blah, blah, blah. You have CNN going ballistic because Tucker Carlson dared to actually try and hear the other side of the story. I mean, this is pathetic. Watch it. Set. A massive shakeup in Kyiv coming as Putin is trying to court the MAGA GOP in the United States. In fact, one of the leaders of the MAGA GOP is in Moscow tonight. It's the man you see here with the MAGA leader, Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson. Possibly there in Moscow to interview Putin. Definitely there as a Putin-supporting celebrity. Just listen to how Russian state media is breathlessly celebrating his visit. Independent journalist Tucker Carlson has flown to Russia from the U.S. via Turkey to Vinukova Airport. He saw Spartacus Ballet at the Bolshoi Theater, had lunch in a nice restaurant, went for a ride around town, rode the subway. He charged his smartphone via a USB port and connected to a fast and free Wi-Fi internet. He charged his phone, although they're knowing the details about the fact that it was during USB port may give him reason to think twice about all of this. But she goes on in that clip. She goes on to say, I just want to point out that, you know, 
I was over in Ukraine the, the night, you know, the, the bombs were going off, this, that, and the other. Okay, okay, okay. We get your bias. By the way, she's, she's a nice person, and she's generally a good journalist, but I would say this is one where she's totally missing out on what actually is journalism, and she's being spoon-fed whatever it is her network wants her to say. And the reason for that is any journalist worth their salt actually does want to hear all sides. I don't care if it's spin. I really don't. I want it on record. Your side, her side, his side, their side, everyone's side, all right? And then I will take that information. I will track it down. I will trace what's right, what's not right, and I will make the decision myself. Thank you very much. I want to do that. And you know what? Every American has the right to be able to make their own decisions. I don't need CNN or CBS or NBC or ABC or any of these places deciding for me what is the viewpoint I should have. I mean, this is what's flipping them out lately because we're here streaming, right? We're here doing this. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're not supposed to have that side. Oh my gosh. Tucker Carlson interviewed Putin. Do we have Chris Wallace, another CNN guy, this guy who, by the way, used to work with me at Fox. Tucker, Chris, gosh, I worked with Aaron at CNBC too. It's amazing what a small industry this is, right? Anyway, Chris Wallace just lost it. I mean, lost it on Tucker Carlson because he went and interviewed Putin and he's like, oh, you know, he didn't ask him any real questions. If Drew has this one ready to go, let's watch. Tucker Carlson showed up in Moscow this week to interview Vladimir Putin. It turned out to be anything but an interview. Putin droned on for two hours and seven minutes while Tucker sat there like an eager puppy. Occasionally, but rarely, he got in a question like this one about the power of the deep state in Washington. It sounds like you're describing a system that's not run by the people who are elected in your telling. That's right. That's right. But more telling than what Tucker asked is what he didn't ask. Nothing about why Putin invaded a sovereign country. Nothing about targeting civilians. Nothing about Russian war crimes. A reporter can ask Putin a tough question if he wants a real interview. Hmm. Why is it that so many of the people oh, that so proud of this Vladimir 2018 Putin interview end up dead or close to it? <laughs> but apparently that's not why Tucker went to Moscow. During the Cold War, gullible Westerners who spread Soviet propaganda were dismissed as useful idiots. But calling Tucker that is unfair to useful idiots. No, he's made a cynical decision to chase MAGA's affection for dictators. And what better way to cash in than Putin's Kremlin? Wow. So who fed him that? I think jealousy fueled a lot of that. But you see where I'm going. Everybody's all up in arms. Oh, my gosh. Chuck Schumer's furious. You know, everybody at MSNBC furious. You get CNN with their anchors all upset. How dare Tucker Carlson get any other side to the story? I'm not excusing anything, by the way, for Putin. I'm not excusing the fact that there's a Wall Street Journal reporter still there. I'm not excusing how he treats his enemies. I'm not excusing anything. But I am just saying, let's try and understand this a little bit better. Because how the heck did we wind up where we are now? How did we go from having a relatively peaceful, seemingly peaceful relationship with Russia 
and, and, and think of everything that was accomplished with Reagan and Gorbachev to where we are now, to $95 billion later, turn over your money because we have to supply Ukraine with more weaponry. That's the question that we ought to be trying to get to the bottom of. Apparently, all started with Clinton. George Cannon warned of this. You saw what he was saying. He warned of this. And not only did he warn in February 1997, he then went and did an interview with Tom Friedman from the New York Times in 1998. And in this, he said, quote, I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is tragic. It is a tragic mistake. It shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. Again, the guy who was there as ambassador during the whole Cold War was warning us over and over and over again, don't go there. And Tom Friedman even joined the party. This is not exactly uh, how I, shall I say, he's, he's not exactly a MAGA person, okay? This is Tom Friedman, columnist at the New York Times, and he writes in this piece, this is his view, one only wonders what future historians will say. If we are lucky, they will say that NATO expansion to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic simply didn't matter because the vacuum is it was supposed to fill had already been filled. Only the Clinton team didn't see it. They will say that the forces of globalization integrating Europe, coupled with the new arms control agreements, proved to be so powerful that Russia, despite NATO expansion, moved ahead with democratization and westernization and was gradually drawn into loosely unified Europe. If we are unlucky, they will say, as Mr. Kennan predicts, predicts that NATO expansion set up a situation in which NATO now has to either expand all the way to Russia's border triggering a new Cold War or stop expanding after these three new countries and create a new dividing line through Europe. He goes on in this same piece writing, but there is one thing future historians will surely remark upon, and that is the utter poverty, the utter poverty of imagination that characterized U.S. foreign policy in the late 1990s. They will note that one of the seminal events of the century took place between 1989 and 1992, the collapse of the Soviet empire, which had the capability, imperial intentions, and ideology to truly treat and threaten the entire free world, to truly threaten the free world. Thanks to Western resolve and the courage of Russian Democrats, that Soviet Union collapsed without a shot spawning a democratic Russia, setting free the former Soviet republics and leading to unprecedented arms control agreements with the U.S. And what was America's response? Tom Friedman writes, quote, it was to expand the NATO Cold War alliance against Russia and bring it closer to Russia's borders. And then this is the kicker, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, tell your children, he writes, and your children's children, that you lived in the age of Bill Clinton and William Cohen and the age of Madeleine Albright and Sandy Berger and the age of Trent Lott and Joe Lieberman, and you were too, you too were present at the creation of the post-Cold War order when these foreign policy titans put their heads together and produced a mouse. Well, maybe a mouse is being kind of diplomatic and generous. 
because they put their heads together and they created a larger problem. Now, why would they have done that? In all seriousness, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they have had the foresight? I mean, they could just be idiots, certainly, as Friedman alleges. Or did they have to keep someone something busy? Did they have to keep the military complex engine going? You wonder because, hey, a lot of these stocks were doing like nothing. I mean nothing, ladies and gentlemen. They left them for dead. These stocks had gone nowhere for years. Why would they? I mean, it's not like they were building all kinds of machinery or anything. And then all of a sudden, you have the maiden revolution in 2014. In February 2014. And Lockheed Martin, take a look at this nifty little Bloomberg chart. (laughs) All right, I like this one. Okay, so this is Lockheed Martin stock price. I drew a little arrow to February 2014. Look at the overall. See everything in blue there? See, this one goes back, I think, all the way to 1995, maybe a little bit earlier. And you see, like, the stock price kind of humming along, doing nothing, nothing, nothing. And then the maiden revolution happens. And what do you know? That's quite, quite a little cliff to climb. In other words, it went up, 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 and away. Up, 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 and away. Interestingly, following the onset of the maiden revolution. And that was when, you know, Ukraine first started to to bust up. And then let's take a look as well at, say, Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. So this is a a cool little chart as well I want to show you. You see Northrop Grumman in red. You see Lockheed Martin in blue. And then you see the S&P 500 in gray. And I threw the S&P 500 in there because it's interesting to look at these stock prices from 2014, February 2014 onward, and look how they compare and contrast to the overall market being the S&P 500. This is an index of the S&P 500, the SPY. They did better than the S&P 500. They did better than the SPY. I mean, that's kind of weird, given that the S&P has Apple in it, and now Alphabet and, you know, major tech companies. I mean, the criticism of the S&P has been that it's a little too tech-heavy, a little too tech-centric. But a lot of those tech companies have done really, really well. And so you wouldn't normally think of comparing Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin with tech companies or the S&P overall, but look at that. What do you know? They're doing better than the S&P. I think that that actually says a lot. It says something. I mean, people are making money on this, right? So when they sit there and they tell you how important this is, do we have Chuck Schumer saying that, Drew? Uh, Chuck Schumer telling us it's so, so important. We heard Mitt Romney, right, tell us most important vote of your life. How about Schumer? Today, we make Vladimir Putin regret the day he questioned America's resolve. And we make clear to others, like China's President Xi, not to test our determination, and we send a clear bipartisan message of resolve to our allies in NATO. With the strong bipartisan support we have here in the Senate, you just have to ask the question, why is this happening? Why do we choose winners and losers like this? 
what is the rationale, especially when the architect of the whole shebang is telling you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Is it, is it stock prices? I don't know. That's where, you know, some people are going to come in and say, oh, you know, she's full of it, et cetera. I just think it's kind of an interesting coincidence, especially when you see the amount of money these companies spend lobbying. I mean, wow, here, take a look at this. Defense industry, spending big in D.C. Do you know this year alone, or actually it would be 2023, they spent nearly 139, let's just call it 140 million bucks. So that's a heck of a return. I mean, hey, you get 95 billion dollar bill and all you had to plank down was 140 million wouldn't you take that trade all day long i think i think this is the money at stake folks this is courtesy of open secrets and you see that we're at a level that well we haven't really seen since quite some time i mean maybe what would that be it's hard to see on this particular graphic i I think too is it 2008 when we last spent something close to that it, it, it's not clear, but I would just say this. Um, maybe some of you can like zoom in on that video. I would say this. We're spending a lot. We're spending a lot. And it's money that could go to better things if somebody had some desire for it to go to better things. Which brings us right back full circle to Rand Paul. Rand Paul for the win. Listen to him again. Um. The title of this bill should say, Ukraine first, America last, because that's what this is really about. Now, bills in the legislature, bills that come before the Senate, don't have pictures or covers on them like a book would have or a magazine. But if this bill had an image or a cover on the front of the bill, the image would be the migrant in New York who assaulted a police officer was freed from jail on no bail and gave the middle finger of both hands to America. That's what this bill is. It's the middle finger to America. Middle finger to America. You have our leaders to thank for that one. You also have our leaders to thank for these extraordinarily awful inflation numbers. And the reality that this inflation could actually drag us back into another economic disaster. I want to share with you the headline from a report written by a friend of mine, someone who tends to be really bearish. I'm going to just, you know, I I call it like it is. I always tell you that. So you got to take them a little bit with a grain of salt. This is from Rosie, David Rosenberg, who, a really interesting guy, tried to call it 08. I think he was at... He might have been at Merrill Lynch. It might have been Bank of America. So I'm just talking out loud right now. I can't remember. He was at a major, major bank as things were going south in 08 or right before 08. And he's told me, he's like, look, you know, they did not want me writing about this. But how could I not write about this? This is, you know, so obvious what was going down with all of these subprime mortgages, et cetera. So he, he got that one totally right. He actually wound up being out on his own and has like his own firm now. Independence, right? That's independence. We got to get him on the show one of these days. But Rosie writes, the U.S. now has an 85% chance of recession in 2024, the highest probability since the great financial crisis. And I read through his report and he's citing a lot of data that really suggests, yeah, in fact, that there's a lot of risk built in. 
And that if you look at other blips we've had in our economy most recently, you actually saw, say, maybe a 12% chance. Well, now it's 85% chance. So that's something to think about. You couple that with the, the report we got on in inflation this week, 3.1% inflation. I don't know what the Fed's supposed to do, right? So if the economy starts sagging, which it very well could, and you don't really have the, the ability to kind of move because you're still dealing with inflation, that would be called, ladies and gentlemen, ooh, bring me back to the 70s, stagflation. Hmm. I told you it was going to be Carter 2.0, didn't I? Stagflation. Here we are. Deja vu all over again. I'll tell you, it's hard on people. It's hard because their gas is costing them more than ever before. And yet you get these idiots all over social media, TikTok, whatever, trying to say that somehow we, we need to go more green, more green, more green, and we just all need to buy EVs. And oh, look, I got nothing against green. Don't get me wrong, but come on enough already. Like we cannot leave the average American in the dust we can't say, great, well, we're going to just require everybody to buy an electronic vehicle, an electric vehicle. I mean, that's what Jeff Granholm wanted. Do you remember our brilliant, brilliant Secretary of Energy who, oh gosh, Drew, I know I'm, I'm pulling stuff out of the wazoo here. I don't know as I, you, you have this one handy, but this is like the, this was something else. Jennifer Granholm went on Bloomberg television shortly after being named energy secretary. And she was asked by Tom Keene, really straight shooter guy, hey, what do you think about energy policy? What is the grand home plan to reduce energy costs? And you know, Jennifer Granholm, she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And then she blamed OPEC. And I'm like, OPEC, are you kidding me? Like, really, are you kidding me? It, 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 it's like she has no appreciation for what we could actually do to change that game for ourselves, right? And by that, I mean drill here in the United States of America. Come on. Well, there's an organization that cares deeply about this, and they care deeply about making sure that energy is still affordable for everyday Americans. And this is why I like these guys, and they're really important right now. I want you to go check them out. Americans for Prosperity. Americansforprosperity.org, AFP. Americans for Prosperity, they care about making sure that we have the right energy policies in place so that you're not being gouged at the gas pumps every single day. They're there to try and hopefully make sure that people like Jennifer Granholm are not in the position of being our energy secretary, or maybe if, if she is, like hope, hopefully somebody somehow somewhere can sit her down and give her a little lesson in Econ 101 and how energy markets work and how, no, you don't have to be completely dependent on OPEC. Thank you very much. You can actually take a little initiative yourself here in the United States of America. But again, we need organizations like this, so I'm proud to partner with them, americansforprosperity.org. Go Go check them out. I, 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 think, uh, I think we'll all see eye to eye on this one. Turning to another big story today. Oh, my gosh. Rubio really making a valid, valid point here. I'm going to pull a Rubio right now and take a big gulp of water. <laughs> That's my Rubio. Remember when Rubio did that? Classic, classic. It was in his rebuttal to Obama's State of the Union. I'll never forget it. I was covering it for Bloomberg Television, and I just couldn't believe it. Anyway, that's my Rubio, my nod to him. Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, making a really important point here. We're so obsessed lately with making sure that refugees, that people who are coming here undocumented into our country have everything they need. What about 
U.S. citizens. What about the Americans that are here? Watch them. One of the things I see a lot in South Florida are people that have been in this country that maybe came from Cuba 45 years ago. They've worked here their entire lives. They retire. They get $800, $900, $1,000 a month from Social Security. And then they run into somebody who just got here from Cuba three months ago, 29 years old, doesn't work, and is given $1,500 a month in benefits by our government because they're refugees. That refugee, a year later, is traveling back to Cuba 15 times. So you're a refugee fleeing oppression from a place that you now go back and visit 15 times the following year. And in the meantime, we're giving you Medicaid, food stamps, uh, health care for your children, cash payments from the refugee fund. So imagine if you've been working here for 40 years and your Social Security check is smaller than the benefits going to a 28-year-old, able-bodied person who just got here. That's real. That happens. That's happening every day. That makes no sense. He's right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, he so doesn't make sense. He's not only offering all this stuff, he's saying, hey, you're going to have free health care, too. We're going to make sure that we have health care for every undocumented migrant. I mean, they're already looking at, what, $68 billion in debt. They can't meet their current obligations. I don't know what's going to happen to their pension system in the state of California. There's $68 billion in debt. They're going to take on another couple billion, which is on the conservative side, what this is actually going to cost them. I mean, hey, why not? For goodness sakes, it's the same guy who wants to give every black American that can prove that they were descendants of slaves $5 million, wipe out all debt and health care for life. I mean, who are these people? Seriously, like, where, like, I know, I know that our country is not very good on the Econ 101 class. We really should give every single student in this country basic, basic household accounting, you know, home economics. Let's really make it home economics and teach them about balancing checkbooks and interest rates and debt and all this stuff because we got political leaders like Gavin Newsom that are so moronic, or maybe it's not that he's just so moronic. Maybe there's a method to the madness and the method to the madness is let's get them all in. Let's get them every single one in because then they'll feel indebted to us. And then we have a voting population. It's short-sighted and naive, however, because I think we've seen proof in both Florida and Texas that, you know what? A lot of people that come here, they actually make a decision that they don't want lawlessness they do actually appreciate law and order and that they were escaping the lawlessness of their previous home country so you keep trying that it's just going to result on in very unfortunate circumstances for everyday americans and politically while you may think gavin and biden and kamala that it's going to help you ultimately it's a big flat failure. It is so good to have you guys here. The live premiere edition of the show. I want to thank you for being here. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you hit thumbs up. Make sure you share, do all that stuff. We're nearly 200,000. I think we are 200,000 followers now. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to have you here. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll talk Monday.